If you have ever wondered what forms my methodology for preaching, you need to look no further than Mary Poppins. A teaspoon of sugar helps the medicine go down. And so when we make you laugh this much before the sermon, watch out. <laughs> Our passage today is perhaps one of the most debated passages in the entire New Testament. When people read it, the first question they ask is this, can I lose my salvation? Happy birthday, St. Peter's. I'll put my cards on the table. I don't think you can lose your salvation. But where I land on that question or where some of you may land on that question is actually irrelevant for our passage because that is not the question on our author's mind. The author is doing something else. You may recall uh, last week or the week before uh, in the passage, the author finally returned to this topic that Jesus is our great and faithful high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's about to spend three entire chapters exploring this big and central idea to the letter. But before he does that, before he goes any further, he stops, he pauses to challenge his readers, to rouse them, to call them to action, to make sure they're really hearing him and to do so, to get their attention, he shakes their foundation a little. He causes some existential shock, some discomfort. The real question. The real question that this passage is asking is this. What is anchoring you? What is the anchor of your soul, of your being? What grounds you to reality and gives you your grip and bearings on life? You see, your anchor, it's going to determine whether you mature in faith or not, whether you grow or you shrink, whether you hear or you go deaf. And so I'm actually glad that a passage like this lands on our anniversary as a church because as we continue to grow and age, we should not presume that maturity will be the outcome. Time does not equal maturity in the Christian faith. And so we need to ask, will we grow toward maturity? Or will we get complacent and comfortable with the status quo, with the way things are, a full room, a growing church, and be happy and say, we've done our work, it's good, it's enough. So here's the question we'll ask this morning. What is the anchor of your soul? And here's the question we'll ask as a church. What is the anchor of our soul? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of our church Bibles home with you. And all the verses will also be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. About this... So about Jesus being our great and faithful high priest, about this, what I've just said, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Talk about come out with guns blazing. You know, you've become dull of hearing. You need milk, not solid food. You're children in the faith when you should be mature in the faith. I can't think of a better invitation to get defensive. But anyone who takes offense also puts their cards on the table. You see, the mature in faith can take challenge like this because the mature in faith acknowledge that there is always more room to grow, that you've never fully arrived. It's the immature who would take offense at this passage. 
The author's concerned that they're going deaf, that they have dullness in the ears. I have tinnitus in one of uh, my ears, and I, I got it from the years of touring in a band, and I always took the earplug out of my right ear so I could hear my guitar just a little bit better. Bad decision. But about a year ago, uh, I began noticing the ringing in my ear more than usual. I would have trouble focusing on conversations, especially in no noisy environments. And I started to worry that I might have like the genes of my grandmother who lost her hearing and, and went deaf and had to have a hearing aid. And I was like, oh, will I stop being able to hear music? Would I, you know, will it dull? Will I struggle to hear the lovely voices of Ansley and Maggie and Julia? And it was causing me a lot of angst. And so I got a hearing test because I'm responsible. And, and afterwards, the doctor said to me, I've got good news, but you might find it to be bad news. Lay it on me, doc. Okay, your hearing is fine. But once you get into your later 30s, it's not unusual to find conversations difficult to follow in loud environments. This comes with aging. In some environments, you might want to ask them to turn the music down. <laughs> like, really? That's the prescription? Be a cranky old man in public places? Now... I was merely experiencing dullness of hearing and the thought of losing my hearing altogether caused me great angst. How much more should the thought of going deaf to the voice of God scare us? But when your spiritual hearing is dull, not lost, you may not like the diagnosis either. You're, you're drifting toward immaturity. In fact, you might even be immature. Because being dull of hearing means that you've turned up the voices of culture so loud or you've turned up your inner monologue so loud that it drowns out the voice of God. It's like sitting in a busy restaurant with a friend but getting distracted by all of the surrounding noise, the hockey game on the TV, the interesting conversation that's happening at the next table beside you, the music playing in the background, the clangs and banter of the kitchen, the things you've got to do after this meeting that are running through your head. Everything but the voice of the person sitting directly in front of you. In the same way, instead of listening intently to the voice of God, what we, the voice we hear in Scripture, we listen to everything else around us. The world is all there is. Faith is foolishness. Live for your own self-fulfillment. Indulge a little. You deserve it. The recipients of this letter have become dull of hearing, and it's begun to stunt their growth in Christ. They should be mature at this point. They should be teaching others about faith. They should be uh, beyond the basics and skilled in reading the scriptures. They should be equipped at this point to discern what is wise or foolish, what is right or wrong, what is good or evil, or what leads toward unbelief or belief. They should be able to do all of this. But instead, they've started to second-guess their faith because life in the city had become challenging. Faith had required sacrifice, and it cost them, and it seemed to make life more difficult, not easier or better materially. So why keep at it? You see, the voice of culture is speaking loudly. It's saying the sacrifice is not worth it. The here and now can satisfy you more completely. And they're beginning to trust that voice rather than the promises of God. Does this describe you? Does this describe the trajectory that you might be on? Are you steadily and progressively moving toward Christ-likeness every single day? Or is your hearing slowly starting to dull and fade? Have you 
been growing in your faith or are you becoming stagnant? Have you lost ground? Are you beginning to wonder if you even want to listen to God anymore? The author wants us to take stock of where we are, to take an honest assessment of the self. Because if we're becoming dull of hearing, we'll stop progressing in our faith. Look at what he goes on to say into chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. To state what he said differently, you've been saved by grace through faith alone. Nothing you can do can earn your salvation with God. It's a gift to you, a glorious gift. And when you repent and believe and receive this gift, you're baptized into the body of Christ. That's your entry point into Christ. And you've had hands laid on you at some point to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you have the hope of the physical resurrection and you're aware of the impending judgment of God on the final day. Saved by grace, baptism, Holy Spirit, the resurrection, and eternal judgment. He says, these are the elementary doctrines of the faith. It's something, it says something about your maturity. If you need each and every single one of those statements explained. Now, if you're brand new to the faith, of course, you would need more explanation than this. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That makes sense. Or if you've just started to explore Christianity, of course you're going to need more explanation than what I just gave. And again, that's okay. That makes sense. But if you've been following Jesus for a while and you haven't even grasped these basics, you're not even able to teach other people about these core basics of the faith, that's a problem. The author writes, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. See, the immature person sees this and says, yes, let's leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and move on to some other philosophies and theologies that are more appealing to my ears. Let's move on beyond the basics of Christ and look to everything else that can complement my faith but isn't actually from God. But the author is not advocating that you get Jesus down and then move on to other philosophies or ideas in the world. He's saying that the gospel, as J.D. Greer puts it, is both the diving board and the pool. That you can see the depths and the substance of all of these foundational beliefs and explore it more and more. But why is it so important? Why is it so important for us to press on toward maturity? You know, why can't we be perpetually young and immature, you know, carefree, throwing caution to the wind? Well, look at verses four through eight. The author lays down a hard truth. It is impossible. It is impossible. In the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. There's no way around the disturbing nature of these verses. In reading commentaries on it, it's tempting to try to soften what they have to say. You know, these verses aren't a punch in the stomach. They're just a nice, gentle pat on the cheek. But I'd rather give them the full weight 
of what they say rather than soften them and be wrong than soften them and be wrong about how soft they are. The author is not describing a person who thought they were saved but weren't in reality. This isn't about someone who was faking it and then gave up the charade. This is the description of someone who has legitimately experienced the saving power of Jesus. They were enlightened. They tasted and shared in Christ and experienced his goodness. This is someone who truly knew Jesus, but then threw him away. They changed their mind. They changed their confession. Jesus is not the son of God. And as a result, they've fallen away. And again, the Greek is to revolt against God. You might recall this phrase from chapter four when we reflected on Israel in the wilderness. What caused them to revolt against the living God? Do you remember the diagnosis? An evil and unbelieving heart. Another word for this kind of falling away is apostasy. A total desertion of your beliefs in Christ. Perpetual immaturity in faith is a problem because it can lead toward this outcome. It leaves open the possibility of becoming the person who stops listening to the voice of God and instead listens solely to the voices around them or their own internal monologue. You turn up the voice of cynicism and skepticism and denial and slowly and surely your heart hardens and then the apostate rejects their previous experience in Christ. They explain it away. It was just wishful thinking. I was merely fooling myself. I was interpreting my experience through religious language, but there was never anything actually there. But there's a gut-wrenching implication. Look at verse 6. They are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They're crucifying, once again, the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. You see, over time, their voice changes entirely. The voice that once cried out, you are the Son of God, ends up joining the original shouts of crucify him. They leave Jesus up on that cross to bear public shame and defeat. He's just a dead Jewish peasant, not the son of God. And so the author says, it's impossible to restore this person again to repentance. It's impossible. Not improbable, not highly unlikely, impossible. Last year, Martin Scorsese released uh, the movie Silence. Many of you see it? Uh, it follows two Jesuit priests who travel from Portugal to Japan and they experience firsthand the horrific uh, persecution that was happening to Christians there in the 17th century. And I've, I've talked about this character before, but it's important to bring him up again. Uh, he's a pivotal character. His name's Kizajero. Did I get it right, Alex? Close. Good enough. He starts out drunk in the movie when you first meet him because he's apostate. And his family was captured by the state and he himself renounces Christ. He steps on this small plaque with Christ's image, but his family, his whole family, refuses to renounce Jesus and dies in front of him. And because of what he did, he believed he was beyond forgiveness. It seemed impossible that he could repent and return to Christ. And yet, slowly over the course of the movie, he recovers his faith. 
He confesses to a priest and asks for forgiveness, and yet it doesn't seem to change him. He again tramples on the image of Christ to save his life. He spits on a cross at one point, and at a critical juncture, he even betrays the priest who offered him forgiveness. And yet, time and time again, Kijijero returns to confess his sins, throwing himself at the mercy of God and asking for forgiveness. He's portrayed as an apostate, but he's not. He's weak. His sins are atrocious, but he keeps returning to God. He's not beyond repentance. It isn't impossible for him to repent. The truly apostate would never repent. So here's the thing. On this side of eternity, I want you to hear me on this. We do not get to assess who is in this condition. We simply do not have enough perspective. We can know of its danger. We can know of how scary this reality could be, but we cannot know if it's someone's status because I've seen too many people, and I'm sure you have too, who have seemingly fallen away from the faith only to return. So it's not that the scriptures were wrong, it's that our assessment of that person was wrong and even their self-assessment was wrong. They weren't fully apostate. They may have drifted, they may have fallen away, but they've returned. It was not impossible then for them to repent. So if we can't actually assess who's apostate and who's not, why does the author bring it up? It's a good question. You're welcome that I asked. (laughs) If you've been dull of hearing, this will get your attention. Are you listening? I'm sure it's got your attention. It's got mine. You might not like what you're hearing, but that means you're actually hearing it. And it's a warning. It's a fearful warning. And we have to remember the author of Hebrews, he's not uncomfortable using fear appropriately. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He doesn't use fear for fear's sake, but fear in relation to the truth. If you're about to get hit by a car and someone screams fearfully at you, that's an appropriate response to the impending reality. Sometimes fear is appropriate. So if this passage scares you or alarms you or disturbs you or worries you, then your heart is in the right place. Your heart is not so hard as to deny your weakness or your frailty, the possibility that you could shipwreck your life. But if this passage does not scare you, if it doesn't strike you as a terrifying reality, it's just more of a meh, then you should be concerned. Because you're not just dull of hearing, it seems that you're moving toward hardness of heart and falling away. You very well may shipwreck your life by rejecting the living God. But still, we're easily distracted. We readily trust other voices than the voice of God. And in part, it's because we fear the wrong things, people. Most of us are more afraid. Can you admit this? Most of us are more afraid that this life will not turn out the way that we want instead of fearing that we might be excluded from God's eternal presence. Most of us are afraid of missing out on the life we want because of limitations the scriptures impose on us rather than fearing the outcome on our hearts of disobeying God again and again and again. 
Because our fears can be misplaced, because we're prone to fear minor temporary struggles over major eternal realities, we shouldn't have any confidence in ourselves. If we continue to trust in ourselves more than God, falling away is a real possibility. What hope, what hope is there for us if there is the possibility that we might fall away from Jesus and enter into this state where it's impossible for us to repent? What hope is there for us? How can we have any confidence in ourselves? That's the point. If our confidence is still in ourselves, then we're most certainly at a place of immaturity in our faith. But before we get into that, look quickly at verses 9 through 12. This is not all bad news. Though we speak in this way, these harsh warnings, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, and I'll add it just so you hear me, in your case, St. Peter's, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Perhaps we should read verse 9 again to make sure we really hear it. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. His methods may seem a little unorthodox and peculiar to our modern ears, but we must remember the author is a pastor and he's writing to a church he loves. This is the only place in the entire letter that he calls them beloved. He knows that a fear of the Lord is appropriate, that it, but it has to have a counterweight of comfort, of love, of knowing God's goodness. You see, they're, they're not just loved by the pastor, they're loved by God. And so they're not going to fall away. They're not going apostate. Their hearts haven't yet hardened to that point. The things of salvation belong to them. But there's concerns. Concerns that must be addressed. You see, they had been earnest in their faith. They had followed God in radical ways. They had suffered uh, for their faith. They had cared for one another in profound ways, visiting each other in jail when they were imprisoned for their faith, you know, giving up their own uh, temporary satisfactions and uh, wealth to support others who had less than them. But their earnestness has begun to slip, which is why the author says in verse 11 and 12, and we desire each one of you to show that same earnestness Show that same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. They've put on the freshman 15 of faith. You know, the extra 15 pounds. And, and so now it's time to rise up, to stand up, to be zealous for Jesus once again. But this isn't a rally cry to put their certainty in themselves. Self-confidence is not the solution. Instead, they must focus their earnestness into having the full assurance of hope. Do you hear what the author's saying? The ancient church has been drifting toward immaturity and a risk of falling away because of a lack of hope. So let's, let's start with what hope isn't. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not stubborn optimism. It's not an idealistic mindset that things will get better and that everything will turn out the way you want in this life. If you call that hope, it is an immature hope at best. 
Because if our hope is rooted in the here and now, if it's just a wish for what we want to happen in our life sometime in the future on our timeline, when we don't get what we want or when things don't change at the pace we would like, we will blame God and we'll start to look for alternative options. And that's not hope. Hope is not escapism either. It's not closing our eyes to this world and retreating into a little Christian cocoon or bubble and and focusing solely on the eternal promises of God. As C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Hope Lewis says, is essential to seeking the common good because it gives you a vision of an eternal city that will endure, a vision that can sustain even when things are bleak. And so hope is essential to seeking the common good and essential to our long-term flourishing. The doctor, Jerry Groupman, who has a great name, let's just pause and acknowledge that. Doc Jerry Groupman wrote a book called The Anatomy of Hope. And he writes this, For my patients... Hope, true hope, has proved as important as any medicine I might prescribe or any procedure I might perform. Is hope really this important? Is hope really a mark of maturity? If if you're like me, perhaps you've already, you know, you thought the pinnacle of character development, becoming mature, is having a specific set of characteristics. You know, you're kind, you're wise, you're, you're generous, you things like this. And surely all of that's a part of maturity. But then one day I really noticed the logic of Romans chapter 5, where Paul writes this. We, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. The climax of character development is hope because in modern society, the end result of a character that is developed is a character that is developed. It's you. But in the Christian life, the climax of character development is not a focus on you, but your hope in God. Hope. Hope is not denial of reality or suffering. It's the refusal to let the present determine the future. What we can comprehend, what we see before our eyes in the moment, it does not have the final say. God's word has the final say. Hope is not self-confidence. Rather, distinctly Christian hope is confidence in God. It's the sure confidence that God will keep his promises regardless of how things appear and often despite how certain our faith may be in a given moment. If you want a definition, here's my best shot. Hope is trusting what God says, God does. And what God promises, God follows through on. Which is what the author essentially argues in the next passage, verses 17 through 18. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, salvation, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
You see, this is why God is a refuge for us, these two convictions. God does not lie, and God keeps his promises. So even if the world shouts contrary, even if our suffering makes us doubt it in the fiber of our being, we can flee to God at any moment. We can flee to him as a refuge and find not just encouragement, but strong encouragement. I like that. Don't you want some strong encouragement in your life? But the encouragement is specific. God, if you flee to God for a refuge, he's not just going to talk you up. If you need that, come talk to me. I'll talk you up all day, but it won't do much for you. If we flee to God for his refuge, he encourages us, he talks us up to hold fast, to grip, to white knuckle hold him close to the hope set before us, to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's going to encourage us again and again to hold fast to this hope. If you run to God, he's going to say, hold fast to the hope. If you run to God, he'll encourage you, hold fast to the hope. What is the hope set before us? Verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Underline that. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Going to deal with that next week. (laughs) The hope set before us is Jesus. When we hold fast to him, he's our hope. A hope that enters into a better place because Jesus has opened up a better future for us all. It doesn't matter who you are. If you cling to Jesus in faith, if you cling to him in hope, he has opened up eternity for you. The presence of God. He's opened up a reality where sin and suffering will be no more. He's paved the way. But Jesus doesn't just save our souls. He makes his home in them too, which is why he is the anchor of our souls, firm and secure. I love that image. Jesus is the steadfast anchor of our souls, firm and secure. When you drop an anchor into the ocean, it doesn't mean that your distance from the shore or your place of of, of staying, I think that's a nautical term, uh, it doesn't mean that you fluctuate or move. There still has to be some leeway. There must, based on the anchor's design. Some give and take for the movements of the ocean. But a secure anchor means you'll never drift so far as to lose your position entirely or to lose sight of the shore altogether. When Jesus is our anchor of the soul, our hope is steady and secure. He won't let us go. We don't need to be confident in ourselves because we're confident in him. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. And he alone will bring us to eternity shore. And he will not let us drift away. Even in the worst storms or the clearest skies, he will keep us anchored to God as our refuge. Yes, the waves and currents of life might cause us to sway and struggle at times. Success and calm tides might even make us complacent from time to time. But our anchor will never give way. And we'll feel the taut line of this anchor at times. He'll keep us and at times pull us as things attempt to push us away. So friends, what is the anchor of your soul? What is the anchor of your soul? 
Where do you derive your sense of security, steadiness, and hope for the future? If it's not Jesus, what is it? Is it the hope of saving enough money for retirement? Is it the hope of one day having enough work experience to get your dream job? Is it the hope of life unfolding according to the plan that you've crafted since you were a youth? Is it the hope that your relationship might finally fill that void you thought it would fill but never quite filled? Is it the hope that what's missing in your life just is mysteriously around the corner still? What is the anchor of your soul? What is the hope that is grounding you to reality and giving you a promise of the future? Whatever it is, whatever it may be, it's not really hope. Whatever it is, at best, it can offer you lies. It can lead you on with a false promise that a better future, yes, is still around the corner. No, it's just around the corner a little more. No, it's just a little further still. You can close your eyes. You can grin and bear it. You can try to have an optimistic mindset. You can hope for the best, but you can never know that this little hope of yours will ever deliver. There is no certainty. But if you put your hope in Jesus, you have a secure anchor for your soul. And as I've said, hope is the pinnacle of character development. It's a mark of true maturity. So in order to attain this hope, the author says you have to press on. You have to press on to maturity in your faith. So if you've been sluggish, if your hope's been wavering, if you've been drifting, or if you've never had this hope at all, you are not beyond it. You're not beyond repentance. As the author has said before, today, today if you hear his voice, today, especially if your ears have been dull for a while, today turn to Jesus and discover the steadfast anchor for your soul. Fix your eyes on him, the author calls us. Learn more and more about him. Discover his beauty, his mercy, his steadiness. And don't ever be satisfied with what you know. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For theirs will be the kingdom of God. If you're always hungry to learn more about God, that is actually a state of blessedness. Never be satisfied with what you know about Jesus. Because there's always more to know about him. There is more satisfaction available because he is our eternal king and our finite minds cannot comprehend him. This is the way to Christian maturity. True hope doesn't let you worry about becoming apostate then or about losing your salvation because your eyes are fixed on Jesus and not yourself. Your confidence is in him and not in your own faith. Your hope is the quality of his character and not your own. You might break promises. You might fall short. You, your character might falter, but his never will. You will always find grace and mercy in your time of need. And true hope doesn't lead us to escape or disengage from the world or our city. Think about how the mature are described in this passage. This is important for us as a church. They teach others. 
In other words, they share faith with others. They instruct others about the basics of the Christian faith. They're useful for the sake of others, the author says. They bless others. If we're going to mature in Christ as individuals and as a church, then we cannot exist for ourselves alone. A full room is not a rival for us. It's not. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, it means we also gain a new perspective that this church must exist for the sake of others, for the sake of the city we're in. And while that means a lot of things from seeking justice and showing mercy, at the very least, it always means that we're inviting people into this hope to experience God as a refuge, to meet the secure and steady anchor of their soul. We must be a church that exists for the sake of those who do not yet believe in Jesus. And if we are not that, we are an immature church. If we don't seek mercy and justice, we are an immature church. But we don't grow into that maturity by just starting to do those things. We grow into that maturity by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, by holding fast to our hope. And when he is our hope, he will let fruit bear out of us.